The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. What I love about, um, <clears throat> one of the things I love about the Dharma practice or Buddhist awareness practice is when we're understanding wisely um, there's nothing that we're being asked to do that we can't directly immediately check out in our own heart or our own mind. So it's nice because it, we don't have to uh, like take something on faith in that sort of more traditional sense of believing in something. We can actually check it out. Ehi pasiko. The training ground, the laboratory, you know, the place of experimentation is just this present moment. And it's uh, the Buddha, you know, as a symbol or our lineage of wise teachers that we maybe hopefully are connected with, even our local, sorry about that, even our... um, local, you know, insight meditation movement here in the West, the teachers in the last 50 years that have been teaching and sort of setting places like Common Ground in motion, you know, they're, they're basically telling us from their own experience that there's something significant to wake up to and each of us, we have our own that awakening is going to happen in our own subjective space of our mind, our heart, the present moment. And it's just a question if we're going to apply this interest and this integrity, this sort of integrity, humility, like do we want to impose what we think or do we really want the moment, reality, to reveal itself? That's why I know it sounds a little funny to say that reality is our devotional object. You know, when you hang out with your friends who have other religious beliefs or whatever, and they ask you, you know, so what's your deity? (laughs) You know? Because it's a kind of a funny question for Buddhists. Um, people in different Buddhist lineages might address that different ways. But I think from the historic Buddha's point of view, as best we can understand, which is imperfectly, you know, what is, uh, what is of significance is what's here and now. And the problem, you know, the, the sort of, turning away, our version of turning away from God is living in a superficial, distracted, uninterested way. And our act of devotion is to start to sense that the present moment reality is relevant. Relevant enough to bring this integrity of interest, and to realize 
oh, there is this capacity that we all have, which is to recognize awareness, which is not the same as doing it. And awareness, mindfulness, that's the way we generally translate the word sati, which is the third of the five faculties. So I'll begin tonight with the simile I mentioned um, at the very beginning that the Buddha uses. And he's uh, using the simile of a fortress, a frontier fortress that has a foundation post deeply rooted, well-embedded, immovable, unshakable, for the protection of those within and to ward off those without. In the same way, a disciple of these wise teachings has conviction, is convinced of this path of awakening, right? And so, you know, in more traditional Buddhist settings, is it's faith or confidence in the Buddha's awakening But, you know, the Buddha's awakening doesn't help us unless that idea of the Buddha's awakening challenges us. Well, if the Buddha can do it, if that happened to the Buddha, who was a human being, then it can happen here in this life. And it's really a a challenge to our experience of being burdened and anxious and tight and afraid and uneasy and you know all the different ways big ways little ways that we suffer right and it's a real I think radical challenge like suffering I mean basically suffering is optional and that's like when you have an honest sense of life as a human being, that's pretty, that's about as radical of a statement as we can imagine. And it's even can appear for us, for people, insulting, like how dare you say that suffering is optional? Because it doesn't seem that way to me or the people I know. And the Buddha didn't say pain is optional or that loss is optional. He said the opposite, you know, that the very nature of conditioned experience is gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, right? Just this play of positive and negative. You know, it's not necessarily the same for each human being, of course. But each human life is this play between positive and negative experiences. And uh, because of our, the mind's very deep fixation on experience, then our subjective experiences as one who is pushed around by the positive and the negative. And when things are good, we feel good, we feel safe, we feel like, I'm special, I know this is life is great, and when our experience is negative or painful, we feel betrayed, we feel something, someone's out to get us, we feel maybe I've done something wrong, maybe I deserve the pain or difficulty that I'm experiencing, or somebody else is out to get me, and 
they're to blame. And then it keeps changing. And we're just uh, pushed around by that change. And so the interesting thing about this post, right, it's, it's really the beginning. It's required because without that sense, that beginning sense, that there's something really important and that something, that understanding is available here and now, like that famous passage um, that gets translated something like, wide open are the gates to liberation or to the deathless. Wide open. Honey, they're available. Wide open are the gates to the deathless. May those who have interest, those who have enough confidence that the present moment is worthy of interest, that the reality of here and now is worthy of that actual interest, may you apply that interest, that bring that confidence to the moment. And the thing is, and I've made this point earlier when we were talking about faith, the fact that we're not doing it so it's not that we lack faith, we just have faith in the wrong thing. Because the fact that we're not bringing interest to the present moment is the manifestation of the faith that it isn't worthy, the present moment isn't worthy of our interest. Right? So we have faith in that idea. Confident. I've checked it out. Nothing to be seen here. So then, of course, we're going to be totally susceptible to watching tons of TV or reading news or doing what we do all day long. And I, you know, I'm not belittling all those things that we fill up our lives with, but it's pretty obvious when we step back even a little bit that it's just entertainment. You know, it's just filling up the space of our lives until what? <laughs> That's the question that we don't have a life or something. So he, that's the first part of the simile, the post. And then the effort, the simile for the effort is the, um, is the large army stationed within. Elephants, soldiers, cavalry, charioteers, bowmen, standard bearers, billeting officers, soldiers of the supply corps, Noted princes, commando heroes, infantry, you know. <laughs> and it's, this is sort of the array. It, it represents the array of skillful means, like in the fortress, all the different ways that our mind can get skillful at abandoning mental qualities that aren't helpful and preventing them from arising and developing and maintaining qualities of mind that are helpful. And, uh, you know, there's something about, this is the area of effort or energy. There's this, uh, maybe you've experienced this in places in your life, but it's really good to know where there's this sense of, uh, of knowing what to do with energy, knowing what's productive to do. And, and there's a thrill, there's real, uh, delight, a movement of joy when we're 
doing what we know needs to be done, and we're seeing the effects of that. And you can imagine, like some of you might be into gardening or home improvement projects or getting your kitchen in order or making that nice meal or organizing your files. But this is done in terms of the qualities of the mind. We're we're realizing that our mind, what we call the mind, is malleable. And when left alone, you know, then we're susceptible to a lot of the cultural forces that are going to be activating and reinforcing qualities like greed and despair and nihilism and judgment and aversion and divisiveness and, you know, all the things that are getting water just from our being in the cultural soup together. But we can, we can learn that, you know, what I pay attention to matters. And I can start noticing the wholesome qualities of mind and noticing that they're wholesome. And that's what strengthens them. And I can start noticing the unwholesome qualities of my mind when they're active and noticing you're unwholesome. You're not helpful. You're not contributing. You're not supporting my well-being or the well-being of others. And that's what weakens the unwholesome qualities. We don't have to get in there and hate them or uproot them even. We just need to notice when there are unwholesome qualities that they're unwholesome. We have to actually sense directly the unwholesomeness, the unhelpfulness of fear when that's dominant in the mind and it's an unwholesome kind of fear. You know, kind of a shrinking away because it's the habit of mind to shrink away. To not want to be exposed or something like that. And just to see, oh, it's basically reading the karma, the cause and effect of that unwholesome quality of mind. Oh, I see what that sets in motion, and I see that what it sets in motion doesn't lead to my well-being or anybody's well-being. And if I keep that unwholesomeness in mind, that unwholesome tendency doesn't get fed and strengthened. It begins to wilt and fade because it's not getting fed. Seeing unwholesomeness for what it is, is the weakening of it. So you may not like the simile of the army and all of its cores. And, you know, it is kind of amazing though, like, uh, whether, you know, you think of it as a Girl Scouts troop or a Boy Scout troop or the military or any, uh, any system that has been designed to do something and, and the mind has brought a lot of attentiveness to the task. It's impressive whether you're watching choreography or music or filmmaking, you know, and just the attentiveness. I mean, this is a stupid example, but I'll blame it on my wonderful partner. By the way, this is like, Wynn and I are batting about 50%. Wynn realized about 5 o'clock this afternoon that it's our anniversary. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. I think we make it about 50% of the time where we remember it's our anniversary. But we watched the movie Hot Fuzz recently. And the the tickler from Wynn was, it's so well written. 
Oh, which I think she used the word, it's so tight. I don't know if you know the film, but it's a comedy sort of film, silly, over-the-top comedy type film. Um, but anyway, but we did, I watched the last half with her, and it is, it was like impressive, the, <laughs> the attention to detail and to sort of how many different sort of memes they could make fun of, of sort of British village life, basically. They were in the police force and a few other sort of <laughs> central themes of the movie. And uh, even things like that, when there's that, like, let's do this with a lot of attentiveness, a lot of integrity. So there's a purpose, and then that application of mind to that purpose. And the mind delights in that. And it's the same with the awakening process. Like, the initial insight is something like, there are skillful and unskillful qualities in this mind, and that's relevant to me, to the sense of me. Right? This arises out of a sense of self-compassion. The fact that there are skillful and unskillful habits, the mind is malleable, and right now there are skillful and unskillful habits, and it's relevant, and the heart naturally, organically cares, and it cares about uprooting or not feeding the unwholesome and developing and strengthening the wholesome. And that's what a, that stability that comes from that is what allows for this deepening understanding of what sati, what awareness is. How it, sati is, in a way, the initial manifestation of wise view, of a mind not completely uh, limited by, oppressed by, wrong understanding. So when we begin to understand what it means to be aware in any moment, however feeble, however limited, like doesn't last long, but a moment of awareness is a recognition of, it's a, it has the flavor of awakening. However faint it is, that's how it becomes onward leading. Because when, like even in the way we practice tonight, when we're aware, when we're remembering that this is being known, there's a sense, it's, it's uh, paradoxical, because on the one hand, the remembering that this is being known, and you can use, even as I'm talking, the experience that's being known now for you, when we're aware and keeping in mind that this is being known, on the one hand, there's real intimacy. There's a sense of wholeness or completeness, like nothing's being left out. That is the truth. This is reality. This is being known, this experience of this moment. It is being known. And there's something essentially true about that experience that this is being known. Essentially true and whole or complete. It's not easy to put it into language when we get that. And at the same time, there's a kind of freedom or space or dispassion, like a non-dependence on what it is that's being known. And the way we describe it sometimes is that when 
were when wisdom is tuning in to that the experience of the present moment is being known, that it's not so identified and dependent on what's being known. But I wouldn't make too big of a deal about that last statement, but it's just a a helpful way of understanding how keeping awareness in mind comes with this flavor of freedom, freedom of the mind not being pushed around or dependent on what's being known. And this is something that can be directly, immediately sensed, felt even. And that's the taste of freedom. Right? We want to know what it feels like to recognize that this is being known. It's just an experience being known. It may be a heartache being known. It may be joy being known, happiness being known, unhappiness being known, pain being known, pleasure being known, something silly being known, something profound being known. But there's that flavor of space, of dispassion, of equanimity, So interestingly, the Buddha, uh, in the simile, this third fa- uh, faculty of mindfulness or sati, awareness, is likened to, uh, what does he call it, an intelligent, a wise, experienced, intelligent gatekeeper. To keep out those they don't know and to let in those they do know. For the protection of those within and to ward off those without. In the same way, a a disciple of the Noble Ones, of the Buddha, of these wise teachings, is mindful, highly meticulous, remembering and able to call to mind even things that were done and said a long time ago. With mindfulness as one's gatekeeper, the disciple of the Noble Ones abandons what is unskillful, develops what is skillful, abandons what is blameworthy, develops what is unblameworthy, and looks after oneself with purity. And then the next part is the, the ramparts that are high and thick and completely covered with plaster for the protection of those within to ward off those without. This is for, this is a simile for discernment. In the same way, a disciple of the noble ones is discerning, endowed with discernment, leading to the arising of the goal. Noble, wise, penetrating, leading to right ending of stress. Right, the full, unshakable release of the heart, as it said in another sutta. Now, samadhi's left out here, comes at the end. That's a little different. Normally we have samadhi. But it's because the way that the simile works, so samadhi is described in terms of the four jhanas, the four deepening states of absorption. And it's all the nutriment that's in the fortress. So the grass, the, the, uh, the food, but also the other supplies. So grass, timber, water, that relates to the first jhana. Rice and barley, the second jhana. See, that food gets more refined as you go up the jhana. Sesame, green, gram, which must be kind of a lentil. Other beans, ghee, and then the fourth jhana, ghee, fresh butter, oil, honey, molasses, and salt. 
Right? These are, at least in the olden days, were very precious things. Right? They had to go to the sea to get salt, usually, or some mine wasn't as cheap and readily available like we have these days. So those things that kind of keep the mind, heart refreshed and healthy, right? The well-being, that's what the samadhi does. It sort of holds us together, stabilizes our well-being so we can do the work of being the gatekeeper, being the army that's cultivating what's skillful and preventing and abandoning, throwing out of the fortress the things that aren't needed in the fortress. You don't belong here. You know, you're not on our side or whatever. You're not for our well-being. Sorry, you don't belong. And you know, it's just because uh, the practice is stable and non-judging, it's that non-judging that actually notices what's for our well-being and what's not what's not worthy of identifying with or using. You're not helpful. And in another sutta, the Buddha talks about this link between awareness and uh, equanimity. I really like this. And and for me, it really helps. I don't know if you remember, um, I mentioned this recently in a talk, one of the early books from Thich Nhat Hanh, this really important, impactful uh, Buddhist meditation teacher, Buddhist monk, who died about a year and a half ago. And he was originally from Vietnam, but he got kicked out as a peace activist um, during the late 60s from Vietnam, which was a real boon for the West, because he taught in the West for many decades then. He ended up dying back in Vietnam when he was quite old, but um, one of his first books, which must have been published in the early 70s, I'm guessing, uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness. And I remember right when I was starting my practice, it was around back in the early 80s, and I kind of rolled my eyes. I was more interested in things that didn't come off, at least to, on the surface, as being idealistic, because I was in a place of teasing out a lot of idealism from my mind around, especially in spiritual sense. You know, I just, from my upbringing, I just had a lot of spiritual idealism and also just in my personality. And uh, so I, I didn't really kind of, I just thought it was a little too lofty or whatever. But I think the point he was probably making by choosing that title for his book, his sort of first book he's written, he ended up writing just dozens of books over his lifetime. But, you know, I think I'm guessing that he chose that title because there is something in a moment of mindfulness, there is that flavor of freedom, of peace. When we're aware, when we're recognizing the awareness, this is being known. So we're recognizing that this is being known that the mind or this and that moment, this experience as a human being in that moment is experiencing a non-dependence on what it is that's being known. There's a freedom that, like I mentioned earlier, that also involves a real intimacy with the way it is. And that's why when we get a little momentum of mindful awareness, we 
the experience is, is really different. There's a kind of lightness of freedom uh, and immunity. The heart, the mind, it feels immune from what normally burdens and weighs us down. And initially, when we have those experiences initially, and I'm sure some of you have had tastes of this, what can arise is a kind of doubt, like, this can't be real. There's a, I, I, I shared this, uh, some quotes in the email that I sent out earlier this afternoon with some quotes about awareness. There's one that I just came across recently that I thought was pretty interesting. It's from, I believe, the Tibetan tradition. Let's see if I can find it here. Oh, here it is, yeah. From the Sangpa school of Mahamudra. So Mahamudra is uh, one of the lineages in Tibetan Buddhism. And the statement goes like this. So close, you can't see it. So deep, you can't fathom it. So simple, you can't believe it. So good, you can't accept it. And that's, I think that captures pretty well when we get a little momentum of mindful awareness, no matter the objects, right? That it's not about being with the breath, although you might use the breath, but when there's real momentum, then any moment, any experience, we'll do it. it's just the next thing being known, the next thing being known. And the kind of freedom that we, you know, especially the initial experiences, it feels really out of the box, like, I didn't, I mean, I had heard about freedom, but I really didn't know this kind of freedom existed. There's a, a release that's unexpected. We've been swimming in the water of dukkha so long, that's all we know, the sort of, the weight of fear, the weight of greed, the weight of just the way our mind operates and imagines and constructs, meaning that when there's a taste of real freedom, it's really remarkable. And a wave of doubt can come up like, no way, no way. Because we still, you know, everything looks the same. And it's like this, like, we, we realize the mind is more devoted to consistency than it is to our actual experience. No, 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 I'm a miserable, suffering human being that has a lot of self-doubt. And I don't feel that, sense that, but I'm pretty sure it's still here, right? Again, that's an example where we have a lot of faith in what we think is true. And we have to drop, like, so now what we're doing is dropping faith in anything and really developing faith in a process, which is remembering to recognize that this is being known. And so here's that discourse that I wanted to share where the Buddha um, is making, linking up um, awareness and equanimity. So the Buddha is talking to Ananda, his attendant, and a lot of the teachings come from these conversations. I'm sure the Buddha, just in his own sense, knew that 
And, you know, at least as the story goes, Ananda had a perfect uh, memory. You know, he didn't forget anything. So, now how Ananda, in this training of the awakened ones, is there the unexcelled development of the faculties? And he answers his own question, the Buddha. There is the case where when seeing a form with the eye, and he'll go through this with all six sense gates, but let's just do it with seeing. But the same with hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental activity or thinking. There is the case when seeing a form with the eye, there arises in a practitioner what's agreeable or what's disagreeable or both agreeable and disagreeable, right? That makes sense. One discerns, this is agreeable, this is an agreeable experience, I'm sorry, this agreeable experience has arisen in me, or this disagreeable experience has arisen in me, or this mixed experience has arisen in me. And that, and that experience is conditioned, constructed, ordinary, worldly, dependently co-arisen. And what that means when we say something like dependently co-arisen, what the Buddha means by that is, Given all that's emotion, it can't be other than what it is, this experience that's being known, like this sight that's being seen. And then the Buddha says, but this is peaceful, this is exquisite, that is equanimity. With that, the arisen agreeable or disagreeable or mixed thing ceases and equanimity takes its stance. Just as a person with good eyes, having closed them, might open them, or having opened them, might close them. That is how quickly, how rapidly, how easily, no matter what experience it refers to, that the arisen, agreeable, disagreeable, or mixed thing that we've seen ceases, and equanimity takes its stance. And this is the Buddha's example of when we go from our conditioned habit in every moment or almost every moment for our mind to be dependent or fixated on the object of the present moment that we're knowing. Like maybe you're confused by what I'm saying and what the Buddha, what I read that the Buddha said. And then there's some identification with that confusion, like if that's your experience. But we can go from that identification with being confused, like what's the Buddha talking about, to this confusion is being known. And that's as quick and as easy as opening eyes that have been closed or closing eyes that have been open. It's not a big deal, actually, for us to go from the identification, the fixation on the object that we're experiencing, to an awareness, to the recognition that this is being known. We can do that in any moment. And it doesn't matter what the moment is, even the most, you know, sort of provocative moments of our life or the most ordinary moments of our life. We, it's easy. It's like a, I think in Zen they call it a backward step. I think that's what they mean. And some of you I know have, have done uh, some Zen practice. At least that's how I've always interpreted that statement in Zen practice, you know, that backward step, where we're, it's not actually a distancing, it's really a step into the moment. But it, 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 and it can appear to the mind to be a backward step, like, 
oh, it's just this being known. It's just because it's a step out of entanglement. It's a step out of dependence. It's a step out of some limited, oppressive relationship with the present moment. When the mind simply remembers to recognize, it's, the mind isn't doing this. The mind is remembering to recognize that it's being known. Now the key is, the takeaway is, you got to check this out. <laughs> you have to get interested in checking this out. And this is, you know, this week especially in our course of the next few weeks. And this would be a really useful conversation in our small groups next week, uh, week six. We have a small group. And just don't try to, um, you know, put a good spin, like actually check it out and report back what you learn. Is there a taste of freedom with moments where the mind is recognizing this is being known? This, is there a subtle flavor of release, the release of what, the release of the dependence that was there a moment ago? Because that dependence, that entrenchment, that entanglement, depends. It's a conditioned happening. Suffering is a conditioned happen, happening, and it depends on the non-recognition that this is something being known. It depends on the forgetfulness. So when the remembering that this is something being known, well, that's a direct challenge to the experience of suffering, tension, that dependence, that entanglement, that entrenchment. So we just want to see. You know, we're feeling guilty, and then we recognize, oh, guilty is being known. Feeling guilty is being known. We're feeling needy. Neediness is being known. Feeling some lust. Lust is being known. We're feeling some joy. Joy is being known. Oh, and as soon as we realize, oh, it's just joy being known, then the mind is less inclined to try to make the joy last or to make the joy something that's mine. It could just be joy, which is really the right way, the skillful way to be with joy when it shows up in our life, to just let joy be joy, let it in, let it last as long as it can last, let it bloom in a way that it can bloom, but not needing it to be different or more than what it is, because that just, of course, ruins it. And I think it's really nice, like I started, um, you know, just in a somewhat playful way, And but for some of you it might be useful to explore this awareness in the present moment as a, in that devotional sense. And there a line I came across a long time ago from John Tarrant, I think he pronounces his name, and he just has this great line, I forget what the article was, but the line is this intention to be aware, he calls it an intention so persevering that it becomes a kind of love. Like this devotion to this backward step, to the remembering, to recognize that this is being known. It's like a love affair. Like, honey, I do not want to forget you. 
And we just want to do it in more and more moments. We want to remember that in more and more moments of our life. There's no moment where that move or that remembering isn't useful. And all the purpose of the faith, that post, you know, hey, there's something to do with this moment, with this life. And all of our skillful means that we develop, the ways that we can apply ourselves to sort of create a mind that can do the subtle work of remembering to recognize awareness. And then to build that and to, it's not just building the momentum of awareness, but it's also having some skillful means, some meditative objects, like being with the breath, or being with the body, or being with the attitude of loving kindness, where we can refresh the mind, like we really get nourished, because in this, like using this particular aspect of the present moment, like being with loving kindness, or being with the breath, or being with something simple, we can really feel the rightness, the wholesomeness of that continuity. And that makes it better, that makes it more, uh, builds the momentum so that when we're in our daily life and a lot of the objects that are being known are seductive and entangling and unpleasant, we have, we have so much more confidence because we, we learned how to taste samadhi, basically. The, the refreshment and the, um, yeah, the stabilizing effects of, you know, our daily sit, where we t- can touch in, because we have that little corner in our apartment, and we have the, the ritual that we've been working on for three years, as long as we've been practicing, to build confidence in the, it's like a little sacred part of our life that there's so much in my life that I can't control, but so far I have the great privilege of putting aside these 20 minutes or these 60 minutes, go to this corner of my living room where I've got my little altar or i got my little meditation cushion or meditation chair, and I can do this thing with my mind. I can bring it to this little sacred space of being with my breath or being with loving-kindness phrases or being with the body or being with hearing. And I can feast, you know, or be refreshed with all these nutriments. You know, the joy, the ease, the sukha, the stillness, the peace, and that the takeaway is just that greater faith, both in awakening, but also in awareness. So maybe I'll leave it here. Of course, always more to say, but maybe there, there might be a few questions that come up, um, or even comments, testimonial, testimonials from your own life and practice that you'd like to share with the group. And uh, people in the room, if you don't mind, be nice for you to sit up here so I can hand you the mic for the Zoom community so they can hear you. But I can also repeat what you say if if that feels uncomfortable. I won't put you on the camera. 
that uh, I can hand you the mic. And then people online, of course, you can just uh, raise your digital hand so I know you want to share or ask a question. Or if you don't know how to do that, you can also just unmute yourself. So we have about nine minutes or so. Any questions or comments from the group that you'd like to share? What have you learned about mindfulness? What was unclear or questions about what the Buddha means by sati, mindful awareness? What comes to mind? Yeah, Jay. I just want to share that, yeah, I feel like there really has been some very real freedom um, pretty recently in terms of mindfulness around craving and impulse to act. And uh, it's like an impulse comes, you know, to like eat a, you know, a sweet or to, there are all these things I have to do. And so, you know, the impulse to do, 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 and uh, the mindfulness and the practice and the ideas about renunciation and all this, I feel like there's now this second option, whereas before I felt totally beholden. It was like I was just carrying out the whims of my mind and it was exhausting. And now I feel like there's a second option where I could just not do it. And uh, it's so simple, but I felt like it really wasn't there before. It wasn't a viable option. It just wasn't possible. And so the fact that it's now present is like, it's just, it really does feel like liberation and it's not always there. And then it's, you know, painful when it goes away. But um, yeah, it's like the simple example is like just being at the co-op and wanting to get a piece of cake. And then it's like, I could just not get that piece of cake. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, so... Just wanted to share that that's that's been very cool. Yeah, I, I love that testimonial, Jay, and and it's it's such a profound thing, even though it can sound a little silly uh, sharing that, but that actual experience and, and this is like well reported what Jay said, that when there's some momentum in our practice, all of a sudden, just as they said, the mind starts seeing choices that it didn't see before. And it's it's like, oh my goodness. There's also recognition that those choices were always there, they were just unseen. And that even when I'm when I lose this momentum, those choices will still be there, but I'll forget that they're there. And that's also there's something empowering about that, like even when I'm deluded, like even when my mind is back dominated by its habit energies, not recognizing that this is being known, there's still freedom. And that insight just deepens. And it really helps us not be afraid when ignorance dominates our mind. Like, oh yeah, that's how it is sometimes. Like we can even have space around being unskillful. Doesn't mean that we're not harmed, others aren't harmed by our unskillfulness. And that's real, as real as anything. But sometimes it's like that. And being afraid of being unskillful is unskillful. Understanding it as something being known, see, that's pretty radical. We don't have to hate ourselves for being unskillful. We just need to recognize unskillfulness for what it is. That's enough. That is what uproots it not hating ourselves. That's, that's 
steps too far, and it's more of the same, more of the same ignorance. Yeah, thanks again, Jay, for sharing with us. Who'd like to go? We have time for a couple more folks, either online or in person here. Any other thoughts or questions that come to mind? Your own learnings, like Jay's report? Yeah, Omkar, please. Yeah, I guess it's just like a couple pieces. Like, on the one hand, there's just so much freedom. It's like kind of all this freedom and like this whole thing is kind of fake in a sense. It's like this, I'm just reacting to, sometimes I have this like, oh, what would my cat see or a fly? So there's like, I'm like noticing something that other people aren't even seeing and then reacting to that. It's like so much freedom in acknowledging that. But then it's also like this rug is being swept up. Like, oh, wait, I've been holding on to this, all this stuff for so long that's not even real. Like, it's, and then there's anger. Like, all of that grief, grief kind of is, feels like the most powerful word. Um, but then maybe it's just like, oh, grief being, you know, maybe that doesn't have to be a big thing either. Um, so just, yeah. Yeah, some of you maybe heard of uh, Jack Engler uh, because he was one of those people in India back in the late 60s and early 70s when uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and some of the other folks that became really important uh, teachers and leaders starting this, what we call in the West, the Inset Meditation Vipassana movement here. And uh, he later became a Harvard-trained psychologist. And evidently, what I was told, I've heard him speak, uh, his dissertation was this point that Omkar made that uh, the whole, you could describe the whole awakening process as a grieving process. So even though it's delusion, it's our delusion, <laughs> you know. So when we're, we start to, cultivate, follow the teachings and practices, and we're cultivating this recognition that it's just something being known. And I know it can be a little triggering when I add that word just, something being known, but it's it's meant really to simplify. Like there's something that this is being known, there's something, as I mentioned earlier, whole or complete about that. But like Omkar suggested with his sharing, it's a leaving behind. We're leaving behind the wrong idea or the wrong projection, the wrong assumption. But it, it, it was, in a sense, ours. So there is a sense of real loss. And that loss can, in moments, be disorienting. But just like you suggested, you weren't quite convinced when you said it, but I guess that's just something I can, that can be known. You know, that disorientation or that grief or that whatever. That's the key, is that when when we start going down this path, we want to continue going down this path. Because once we have a sense of the path, scrambling out of the path, it gets weird. You know, it's sort of like we sort of know that like that panic is just something being known. And yet we're panicking, like, oh, I don't want this. You know, I want my old life, or 
give me back my attachments and my ignorance. Because it's sort of, uh, it, it is like, uh, it takes a, the mind over in a way. Once we're in it enough, it takes the mind over, I'm imagining a little bit like a computer virus. You know, it sort of gets it, it's hooks in us. Because the teachings are aligned with the way it is. It, they, on some level, they make sense. They align with experience, our subjective, our actual experience, more than our deluded thoughts and you know tendencies do. So they will trump those old patterns. It's hard to shake it once we get a little taste. I mean, we do our best <laughs> to orbit, to keep it at a distance, but it tends to draw the heart in because it's onward leading. It has this onward leading quality and the mind, the deep, um, the deep intuition, compassionate intuition of the possibility of the squeeze releasing is, uh, that's hard to get out of the mind that that squeeze can release the heaviness can dissipate. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.